it made me realise that all I want to do now is to push the boundary, push the envelope physically and mentally. So other amputees coming through, because surgical techniques are going to improve, more and more people like me are going to survive, so our rates are going to get better at some point. And then there's going to be lots of amputees like me. Well, I don't want them to come out of that hospital unit and think, what do I do now? Where, where do I go? There's no manual. You know, there's no book or leaflet that we can read that's, that's going to tell us how we're going to adapt our bathroom, how you're going to figure out climbing stairs, how you're going to look to get back into work, how you're going to learn to how to become fit, to keep your weight down, to become a successful wheelchair user, to become a successful prosthetic user. And I want to give those people the information because I think in this day and age where we have Google, we have computers, we have people sending rockets left, right and centre and we have possibly manned space flight coming up in the next 10 years, surely we can perhaps put together some information that can help amputees moving forward. And that's how I see my life as it moves forward. We want to push that envelope, push that boundary. You know, we want to do more kayaking, we want to do more skydiving, we want to take adaptive equipment to places like Ethiopia, Mongolia. We want to just change the face of disability, change the face of amputation and prosthetic users globally. That's, that's how I see my, my future. Welcome to the Thought Leader Revolution with Nikki Ballou. Join the revolution. There's never been a better time in history to speak your truth, find your freedom, and make your fortune. Each week, we interview the world's top thought leaders and learn the secrets of how they built a six to seven figure practice. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice. Welcome to another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. I'm your host, Nikki Ballou. And boy, do we have an incredible guest lined up for you today. This gentleman was one of the hand-picked faculty of the most exclusive mastermind on the planet that I had the privilege of attending called the Titan Summit. His story will move you, will touch you, will inspire you, will make you cry and give you faith in humanity again. And he is here to share that story and the incredible hacks he has used to take his success to take his ability to make a dent in the universe and make the difference he was born to make to the next level so that you can learn how you can do that for yourself. I am speaking, of course, of none other than the one, the only, the legendary Alex Lewis. Welcome to the show, Alex. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure and an honor to have you, my friend. Alex, our listener is someone who's a seeker. And what they're seeking is they're seeking the path, the way to make the difference they were born to make. And they listen to this podcast to learn from you, our guest expert. What are the things that you've done that have allowed you to do that? They want to know your backstory, my friend. Tell us your backstory, please. So my backstory is... I was born into privilege when I was much younger, and I went to a, a private school. I had everything a young boy could want. I had a great education. I had amazing uh, parents and money at that point. You know, there was nothing that we couldn't afford. 
And then uh, we lost everything. We lost our home, our business, schooling when, when I was about 11 or 12. And uh, after that, I carried on. I played a, a decent level of golf. And then I started to drink a bit too much. I started to womanize a bit too much. And I sort of merged into college. And then I, uh, when I turned 19, I set up a, a building company. And I remained self-employed up until I was about sort of 29 when I met the love of my life, Lucy, my other half. And uh, Lucy and I fell in love very quickly. And we had an amazing little boy called Sam when I was uh, 30. And we took a, the UK took a bit of a hammering in about 2008, 2009. The building sector really, really struggled. And um, we made a conscious decision that Lucy would go back to work. She was running a couple of successful uh, restaurants at the time. And I would raise my son, which was by far the most incredible job I think you can ever have in this entire world. And I had two and three quarter incredible years with this little boy. We were, you know, two peas in the pod. We spent every day with each other. It was just, it was charming. It was just lovely. And then in 2013, we had another a business and I was looking after that one. Lucy was running another site and I called it, I called it cold, uh, nothing more than that. It was November, nothing surprising, you know, people coming in and out of the restaurant, the pubs bringing in all sorts of, you know, colds and flus and everything else. And after about 10 days, it got worse and worse and worse. And then uh, I woke, after a couple of weeks, I woke one night and I, I went for Lou and I found blood in my urine. And I knew then there was something quite quite sinister going on uh, I went back to bed and I said to Lucy look you know I'm quite concerned in the morning we're going to have to call the doctor and get them out and see me I feel really really bad and went back to sleep thought no more of it and then I woke in the morning and I was <clears throat> at that point I was semi-conscious I couldn't speak I couldn't move my body very well my skin was starting to turn purple blotchy uh, I was uh, lucid um, and I remember staggering downstairs because uh, we were living above one of the restaurants at the time, and I was I was half 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 clothed at best, and I managed to open the back door, and, and Lucy was there uh, trying to get in, and I opened the door, and she could see that I was clearly not in a good way, and uh, she called the paramedics, and they came out straight away, and they said, look, we need to get Alex to intensive care. Uh, we, we have no idea what he's got, but he, he's dying. Um, he's slipping out. So I was rushed to intensive care. And when I was presented to a couple of anaesthetists, they asked Lucy and I lots of questions. I could barely speak at this point. And uh, luckily for us, one of the guys had seen a case when he was studying to become an anaesthetist and he diagnosed it as strep A. And uh, with that, I was placed on life support. Um, and I was on life support for in total, uh, seven days. <clears throat> After the third day, the anaesthetist said to Lucy and my mum, look, we feel that the likelihood is he's going to pass away. Um, so what we're going to do, we're going to give him another 24 hours. And then if he doesn't wake on his own, we will wake him up uh, mechanically. And then you can say your final goodbyes. Now, I had no clue of this at the time. I was, you know, uh, away with the fairies on a huge amount of drugs. But for whatever reason, I did wake the following morning and I did come around and that was just the beginning you know I think we all thought at that point oh man thank goodness he's through the worst of this with strep whatever it is um 
But then we were told uh, more information that it wasn't just strep, it was septicemia, it was toxic shock syndrome, it was necrotizing fasciitis, it was all these things that we'd never heard of. And we couldn't really piece together what, what on earth was going on. And they said, look, we're going to have to move you from Winchester Hospital, which is a small hospital, not far from where I live. And they were going to move me to a specialist unit about 45 minutes away. And when we moved to the specialist unit, it then transpired that I was uh, I had to undergo amputation of my limbs. I lost my left arm above the elbow. I lost both of my legs above the knee. I had extensive skin grafts to my face. I had all of the skin from my back grafted onto my, my stumps. They carried out numerous procedures. And one was to try and save my right arm by fusing my left shoulder into the arm, which sadly it, it worked immediately at the time. But six months later, I broke my arm in an innocuous situation and my right arm was subsequently amputated below the elbow. And since then, we've been on this bizarre path of rehabilitation, of basically starting again. You know, everything that you learn as you when you're born and as you get older, when you go through your childhood, uh, all the simple things like eating, drinking, going to the loo, putting your clothes on, all these things we had to relearn uh, all over again, which for a, a, a 33-year-old or a 34-year-old when I, by the time I came out of hospital was quite a, a, an ambitious task. And since then, we, we've been doing all sorts. Uh, and it's been a not only a life-changing uh, situation to go through, but it's been a life-affirming and a, a life-enhancing situation. It may not sound it, but my life now is... A hundred thousand times better than what it was. Um, for what I've seen, the, the doctors, the nurses, the anaesthetists, the surgeons, all the people that worked hard to save my life, and the compassion that they gave, and the, the support I had from my family, my friends, Lucy, my son, how imperative he was to uh, getting me through what was undoubtedly the, the worst worst time of my life. Um, it's been a, a blessing in disguise, and it's it's just been awesome. It really has. So, Alex, you saying that is inspiring, and, and it absolutely blows me away. I mean, you told your story in an expanded format at the Titan Summit, and I'm, I'm moved by how you're choosing to view this, how you're framing this experience. But I'm, I'm also curious, what is it that allows you to, to say that, this has been awesome and this has been a completely positive transformational experience for you i think for me it was it was the at the beginning it was the witnessing of all the help that we received so uh, obviously you know we were presented to hospital and we met great surgeons great anesthetists um, great consultants but you don't really appreciate it at the time you're just trying to you're going through one day at a time um, and right at the beginning, I was in and out of surgery. And in the last four and a half, five years, I've had 100 and, I think it's 130 hours now of various surgeries carried out. But it, re it reconnected Lucy and I and, and my son in a, a completely different way. I think we were, we were kind of treading water and I wasn't the greatest, wasn't the, certainly wasn't the greatest partner and I wasn't the greatest father. I was a heavy drinker. And I was lazy, I was idle, you know, I, I could have done so much more with my life. And I think when I lost my limbs, I realised what I hadn't done in the previous 33 years. 
And when I thought about that, and I thought about everything that these people were trying to do to, to put me back together again, to give me a semblance of a chance to go on to, to live a life, um, it completely altered my thinking. I was lying in hospital bed thinking, I cannot go back to being that guy. You know, the guy that was presented to Winchester Hospital, you know, five years ago, he's long gone. Um, and I, I kind of found a, a renewed faith, I think, possibly in the human race. I think sometimes we get bogged down with the negativity of the press and the various, uh, you know, like the National Health Service for us in the UK, lots of problems with the health sector and blah, blah, blah. But when I needed it, it was all there. And all I witnessed was thousands of people trying to do the best they possibly could to uh, keep me alive. And when I saw my son and I, I saw the, the, how stricken his face was when he saw me after my facial surgery, you know, it, it was heartbreaking for me. And, it, you know, he wouldn't have me for months and months and months post-surgery. Um, but when we did reconnect, when he did have me for the first time, oh man, it was like my life had begun all over again. And it was the small things like that that meant so, so much to me. And I think because we came out of it so positively and I, could, I, I was witnessing something truly incredible, not just from the people that were trying to save me and put that together again, but also um, it was so severe what happened to me. And th there aren't many uh, quadruple amputees as severe as I am uh, in my age group uh, through strep. You know, I should think a good 99.9% pass away. So we really defied the odds. And I, I've never forgotten that. And I think because I'm so lucky to be here, I've treated every day since as an absolute blessing, a privilege. I want to go out and do as much as I possibly can in as many countries as I possibly can, doing all sorts of weird, wonderful things, things that I would never have touched prior to falling ill. It's, it's just made me reconfigure my life in, a, in a, a, an incredibly positive way. Wow. <laughs> you know, I'm not often at a loss for words. I speak for a living, but <laughs> wow. There's a couple of things I want to I want to I want to say about what you just said, and then I have a question for you. They say that what doesn't kill us make us stronger. That's a platitude. But in your case, it seems to have literally been true. And they also say that throughout history, men in particular need to be challenged. And we live in an age where, let's face it, men aren't being challenged to be their best as men in many ways. There's a lot of men that are lost. There's a lot of men that don't even know what, what being a good, honorable, masculine man is all about. And I, I'm of the belief that a man needs challenge in his life. A man needs something mightier than himself to, to strive for because that pulls out that warrior badass within and has him go out there and fight and conquer, or, or at the very least, even if not conquer, even if he goes down, he goes down in, in an honorable way. He dies what Stephen Pressfield, the author of uh, the book, The War of Art, calls a good death, right? And um, yeah. you strike me as... I mean, pardon me for saying this, as a man who was a little bit lost before all this happened to you in many ways, 
um, yes, and absolutely. didn't really know what his purpose in life was. And this experience has brought out that badass warrior within you. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, it's, it's true. It has. You know, I, we were in a position where it was it was sink or swim. You know, we were either going to get bogged down with the 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 stress of the problem, the 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 fact that life was never going to be the same again. You know, it was going to be hard, and it is and it, and it is difficult. Don't get me wrong. You know, it's not easy just functioning with one prosthetic hook. You know, for sixteen hours a day. But it's, it's minor for me, and, and it's the mindset. And I, when Shortly after I fell ill, I met a, a, a chap, a Scottish guy called Jamie Andrew, and he he was a mountain climber, and he got frostbite, and he lost his uh, lower legs, and he lost his hands. And he said to me, he came to see me in hospital, and he said, you must never forget that what you're going through now, in this moment, you think it's physical. You think the problem is the physicality of it, the fact that, your limbs have gone. And he said, it isn't. You know, this this problem is mental. You have to look at this as this problem is 95% mental, 5% physical. And ever since he said that, that's exactly how I viewed it. You know, my mind and my uh, my mental health and my, my mental well-being has to be on the money to uh, make me go out and do what I do. But because of that, I need that strength at home i need lucy to be i mean you, you call me badass my my other half is more badass than i am you know she was the one that said in two years time you're going to get back to work in three years time you're going to have this trust running and you're going to be making a difference all around you know she was the one saying you're going to do this you're going to do that and i'm lying there thinking how on earth am i going to do that you know i, I couldn't see beyond at that point the hospital room but lucy was living outside of that and she was seeing all the support of the thousands of people that we met through hospitality that were, you know, wanting to know how he was getting on. And I didn't know this. And, you know, it was just, it was mind-blowing. But the strength has to come not only from within, but I had a hell of a partner. You did, you know. I, I, I met your, I met your lovely wife. She's, she is, she's one strong woman. Uh, she yeah, gives off the strength of a Maggie Thatcher, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, and the warmth of a Mother Teresa. You know, so um, there's no question, and she's an accomplished woman in her own right. So, I, in no way do we want to take away from that. But I, I also want to come back to this adage for man. It's been said that behind every great man is is is, is an even greater woman. And I want to tell you a story. I don't know if you know this story, but I mean, you certainly know the individual I'm going to talk about. the The American President Ronald Reagan. So um, he was married to to uh, someone, uh, and he divorced that lady, and then he married Nancy, and he married Nancy later on in his career. So he 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 was on the downswing of his movie career at that time, and then he got into politics, and you know friends of theirs said that if he'd married Nancy ten years earlier, he'd have won four Oscars and been the greatest star in the history of Hollywood, right? And he ended up becoming probably the most successful American president since Franklin Roosevelt, right? When he 
uh, as yeah. president of the United States. You know, won the Cold War, rejuvenated the American economy, and uh, and all that good stuff. So you know, not not bad, not bad at all, right? And and there's no question that the love of a good woman, Nancy Reagan, in this case, had a lot to do with Ronnie's success. And there's no question that in your life, the love of a good woman, Lucy, herself an accomplished woman, had a lot to do with you being able to bounce back, if you will, from this experience. Yeah. Wonderful. So tell us what you've been doing that's basically created this incredible life you lead now. So I was very fortunate. Um, after about seven or eight months of coming out of hospital, we were going through rehab and learning to use prosthesis, and there were still lots of hospital treatments. And so we couldn't really do uh, that much, or we felt that we couldn't do that much. And then uh, I met a guy who was uh, an ex-Special Forces, uh, ex-SAS chap in the UK. Yeah, th- those guys said, are really girly men, weak guys, right? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, big softies, big softies. Um, and he said, look, you know, I, I've heard about you and I met some injured, injured servicemen when I was in hospital and they spoke about my positivity for this chap and said, look, there's nothing really in the UK for civilian amputees of, of, as severe as me to do um, kayaking, uh, outdoor activity. And uh, these ex-SAS guys were doing a lot of skydiving, kayaking, hand cycling, lots of weird, wonderful trips abroad. Anyway, I met this guy and uh, we got chatting and he said, look, you know, we clearly get on. Have you thought about skydiving? And I said, well, not really. Um, I never never had it on my rig scale before I fell ill. And he said, you'll love it. He said, come and give it a go. And then if you get on with that, we'll see how you fit in with the, the other trips we're going to do. So I, I agreed and I, I said to Lisa, I came back and I said to Lisa, I'm going to go skydiving. She goes, well, do you want to do that? I said, well, why not? And she went, well, if you want to, you know, so it's entirely up to you. Anyway, I got to the, the skydiving centre and it was all military guys there and they they saw me and they said to Mike, the head of the charity, they said, look, Mike, we've got to be honest, but we've never, ever had a quadruple amputee skydive in this in, a, in this centre. And Mike said, well, let's, let's make it happen for them today. And, and that was the attitude. It, it wasn't, oh, no, no one's done it before, so we better not risk it. It was like, we'll find a way. And that way, as it happens, was lots of gaffer tape and ratchet straps and belts and all sorts. And, you know, we completed this tandem skydive and we were the first quadruple amputee to do it in that centre. And it was like, oh, my God, you know, I can't believe I'm the first to do it. But when we got chatting, it, it, it seemed that amputees like me, weren't, we weren't doing anything. You know, there was no when we talked about possibly kayaking in Greenland, we did some digging globally. We couldn't find any other kayaking instructor anywhere in the world that had dealt with a man with no arms and to make it possible for him to kayak. So we had to break the mould and we had to uh, invent ways of how this was going to happen. And we talked to prosthetists about arms and elbow joints and attachments and how I was going to hold the paddle and all this sort of thing. But we were kind of feeling our way through it. And the more that we did things like that, the better it became for me. And it just gave me a, it, it gave me a viewpoint. And I'm thinking, how on earth is things as simple as, in my mind, kayaking, which was just a, a, an engineering conundrum that could be fixed with, a, a, you know, three or four guys sat around a table figuring it out. You know, why wasn't this being done 
for other amputees. And when we completed the trip around the Southern Tip of Greenland and we went kayaking for about nine days out of there and we, you know, we just basically, wherever we pulled up in the kayak, we camped on the on the stones and the shingle by the ice cap. It was just incredible. Um, and we were the first, well, I was the first quad amp to do it over there. And I came back from that and I thought, this this is it now. You know, the, the Alexander's Trust had been set up by then. So people were raising money because they knew prosthesis were hellishly expensive and for me to do these trips I did have to you know spend a lot of my time a lot of money traveling all, all around the UK and to America and all through Europe to try and find answers for amputees as severe as me and it made me realize that all I want to do now is to push the boundary push the envelope physically and mentally so other amputees coming through because surgical techniques are going to improve more and more people like me are going to survive, so our rates are going to get better at some point. And then there's going to be lots of amputees like me. Well, I don't want them to come out of that hospital unit and think, what do I do now? Where, where do I go? There's no manual. You know, there's no book or leaflet that we can read that's, that's going to tell us how we're going to adapt our bathroom, how you're going to figure out climbing stairs, how you're going to look to get back into work, how you're going to learn to how to become fit, to keep your weight down to become a successful wheelchair user, to become a successful prosthetic user. And I want to give those people the information because I think in this day and age where we have Google, we have computers, we have people sending rockets left, right and centre and we have possibly manned spaceflight coming up in the next 10 years, surely we can perhaps put together some information that can help amputees moving forward. And that's how I see my life as it moves forward. We want to push that envelope, push that boundary. You know, we want to do more kayaking. We want to do more skydiving. We want to take adaptive equipment to places like Ethiopia, Mongolia. We want to just change the face of disability, change the face of amputation and prosthetic users globally. That's, that's how I see my, my future. Man, that's, a, that's an incredible vision. You know, and it's it's way bigger than you, and I love it. Are, are you familiar with David Vibora from the United States? Uh, no, I don't think I am, no. So he was featured in a series of videos Starbucks does called Upstanders, and he was a former NFL football player. He got injured, and he was forced to retire, and he met, he met a man in America, who was uh, one of five military quadruple amputees. His name was uh, Staff Sergeant Travis Mills. And when he met Travis, Travis was having a hard time dealing with his situation. He was inspired, I believe by God, honestly, to go to Travis and go, Travis, uh, I want to help you. I want to help you work out. And Travis looked at him, he says, I, I don't want you to, uh, you know, feel like an idiot, but I have no arms and legs. How the heck are you going to have me work out, right? He said, I don't know, but I'd like to work with you to figure it out. And long story short is he did figure it out. And he operates a gym in Austin, Texas that caters Brilliant. exclusively to amputees. Really? Yeah. I think it's called the performance fault. Now, he has a division that caters to high-performance athletes too, like, you know, football players, soccer players, et cetera, et cetera. But 
this video on, on Starbucks called Upstanders, you may want to take a look at it. In yeah. the United States, this this man has been getting some media attention for what he's helped create for amputees. And I believe he's a very inspiring guy. And Staff Sergeant Mills, you, you'll see him in the video, you know, and, and he's got prosthetic legs. He's got an arm cut off at the shoulder and an arm cut off, I think, just above the elbow type of thing as well. And he's doing... Yeah. He's holding on to one of these treadmills, and he's doing a walk. And I'm watching it going, <laughs> damn. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's pretty badass. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I cannot tell you the physicality that has to go into that. It is just off the Richter scale. Um, and you, there aren't that many successful uh, above-knee prosthesis users. Most are uh, ex-military because of the physicality of their job. So they have a fitness level already when the blast injury or whatever the, the reason for the amputation is, um, their, their body is usually in good shape. And I, I've come from my body being in a dreadful shape. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I remember you told us that. Yeah, <laughs> riddled with booze, riddled with alcohol, you know, poor diet, uh, overweight, you know, never, I, running was never, you know, never something I did. I played a bit of golf to a decent level. I love golf, um, but that's about as sporty as I got. And I've had to come into this and, you know, just completely reshape my mindset. And uh, fitness is a, a, a huge factor to making my life easier. And, you know, to wear a prosthesis successfully, you know, you do have to be incredibly, not just motivated, but physically fit. And to have that, that gym in the US to know that there's somewhere where amputees, not just military, but civilian amputees can go to work out and all these things are, the mindset is different. They're looking at it from an amputee perspective and not an able-bodied perspective. You know, and I think that's great. You know, that is, to me, that is huge progress. In the UK, there's nothing like that. But suddenly the military have it, but the yeah. civilians don't. I've been trying to get a hold of uh, David. Unfortunately, he's got some PR people between him uh, and, and me and my people, and those guys are just tough to to get through to. Sometime, it's incredible. I've I've had some some huge, huge successful people on my show, and f for the most part, that's come from me developing a one on one relationship with them rather than needing to needing to go through their PR people. So their PR people yes. are just, they can say no really easily. And, you know, if you're not NBC or CBS or BBC or Sky Television, they just don't want you on. They don't understand the podcast world, which is too bad because we have a, a smaller following than those other organizations. But our following is very committed and they listen yeah. to our shows and they, they love what we do. And, and they, they are supporters and buyers of books, programs, et cetera. So I think it's a mistake. Yeah. But I think... You and your foundation reaching out to to uh, to Dave Abora uh, would be something that you, you know. Just given who you are, I think it might be easier for you to get through to him than it would for me. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think you guys are kindred spirits in terms of wanting to um, make a difference in this space. I've had a client of mine who a couple years ago uh, he was a fitness trainer started working uh, with another fitness trainer who was uh, an amputee but also uh, had been a um, Paralympic uh, medalist and then he created a fitness program for 
folks with missing limbs. And inside of our program, that became his area of expertise and thought leadership. He was able to get over 400 clients using this uh, messaging. And the the messaging was, hey, you can still be a badass. You can still be a a tough guy or tough gal. And um, it worked really, really well for him. So I'm absolutely blown away uh, to have met you, to have the privilege of knowing you. I know that you have uh, some good and important work you're doing with your uh, Alex Lewis Trust. T- tell the folks a little bit about it, and, and let's uh, let's encourage them to to contribute to it. So the work with Alex Lewis Trust, when it started out, it was primarily to keep me or to try and furnish me with the prosthesis that I needed to live as full and as independent a life as I could. But as time's gone on and, you know, we've navigated our way through this this system for five years, we're at a point now where we're taking it up a notch. And um, we're working on a project at the moment where we do a lot of um, research work with universities in, in England and the UK. And we do work on assistive devices. I have a microchip in my left arm that unlocks my front door. I have a microchip in my right arm, which we're trialling for contactless payment. I have all sorts of adaptive equipment that I trial for these students to try and make our world much easier. And I love it. And it's I feel that I can give back. I can give value uh, in the information that I give back to them in how I can test it. And I come at it from, you know, a lot of people that make this adaptive equipment are able-bodied. And I come at it from the other, the other end, the end user, which is quite key, I think. And we're doing projects at the moment where we built a a four-wheeled solar-assisted battery-powered hand cycle for me. And we are going to take that to Ethiopia in September this year. And we're going to cycle through the Simeon mountain range. Now, um, Ethiopia, we chose Ethiopia because it's the, the gentleman that's underwriting the project at the moment. Uh, his good friends are tour guide over there. And we felt that his input would be greatly appreciated for a very, very uh, a new uh, idea that we have. So we're, we're going to go to Ethiopia, and, and Ethiopia is very progressive in the sense that it has a female president, and over half the cabinet in the government are female, and they're pushing disability to try and make it more, or Ethiopia is more aware of it in regions, not Addis, because Addis is a very progressive city, and it's doing very well. In and around the borders of Ethiopia, there's a lot of war, a lot of polio, and a lot of uh, infection. So there's an awful lot of amputees over there, and we're going to cycle through these areas in this adaptive uh, four-wheel bike, and we want them to see that anything is possible. You know, we're going to go to areas where they've never even seen a a hand cycle, let alone this contraption that's solar-powered and battery-assisted. Now, the idea is we will then climb, cycle up, and then finish climbing up Ethiopia's highest mountain. And then I will be the first quadruple amputee to sit atop of Ras Deshen. And I'll, I'll have the bike with me on the top of this mountain just to prove that we can do it. It's doable. You know, who would have thought that a quad amputee would be able to A, cycle, bearing in mind he's got no, he's got no arms, how can he have cycle? Uh, as for mountain climbing, a few of us do it, but not many. But it's more than that. It's not just about, yes, you can do it. It's about leaving behind uh, a legacy within the community. So we've set up a wheelchair manufacturing plant. Now, they will make 2,000 wheelchairs a year by the end of 2020. 
and each of those wheelchairs is $200 to buy. Now, to put that in perspective, in uh, the UK, uh, the wheelchair that I use, which is just a very normal manual wheelchair, is £7,000, so about $10,000. So it's crazy money, crazy, crazy money, and the average wage in Ethiopia is $2,000 a year. So a wheelchair like mine is just completely, it's never going to happen. And I think that in areas like this, we can make a massive difference with recycling uh, bikes. And we set up this plant and it has disabled workers making the wheelchairs. Each wheelchair is custom. So the NGOs that are supporting us at the moment who, who promise to buy 80% of the wheelchairs, each of their, their clients will come in they will get a custom wheelchair and it's made within two to three weeks. And if you live in the mountain ranges, you will have a cycle attachment attached to it. So people that have been dragging themselves around the floor for years are now being given the opportunity to use something that will get them miles and miles and miles in a day. Whereas before they've never even left their community more than a few hundred yards. And that's a huge impact on a small amount of money. And the Ethiopian government uh, like our business model so much that they've tripled our investment into the region and they're setting up two more uh, wheelchair manufacturing plants uh, south of Addis. So we'll be making 6,000 chairs by the end of 2021. Now, 6,000 wheelchairs will help a huge number, huge number of disability or mobility impaired Ethiopians. Now, we're now looking to roll that out to the Gobi Desert, which is what we're going to do in 2020. We're going to the Gobi, and we're going to see what they need. It's not just about wheelchairs. It's not just about hand cycles. It's about what the region needs. You know, we will look at the majority of the disabled in the region, and if there's something that we think we can make through the benefit of manufacturing, through the benefit of having a university in the UK link with a university in Mongolia or link with a university in Ethiopia, then they can share the knowledge. So if there's a problem, it can be looked at in the UK and it's all the all the method of sharing the information. And hopefully, I think in about five years' time, we will go to five different countries and we will probably be manufacturing up to 20,000 wheelchairs a year. Now, all this has come off the back of one rare infection, one complete shift in mindset and a huge amount of public support. And I can't say, I can't find the right adjective to describe how good it feels to be doing what I'm doing right now. But we do need to raise money. And through the Annex Lewis Trust, we will continue to raise money to make sure these wheelchair manufacturing plants are set up, that I can keep myself in a position where I can cycle up mountains, I can cycle across the Gobi Desert, I can hopefully cycle across the Arctic in a similar adaptive bike. And then we're looking to adapt to Pedalo to turn that into the first solar-powered uh, assisted Pedalo that we can cross the Atlantic in, believe it or not. And then we're looking to travel through a jungle uh, in said bike with a fuel cell. So we, we don't just want to, we want to do it all. If I'm honest, you know, I realise that life's incredibly short and I want to push into my life as much as physically possible. And along the way, if I can make a bit of a difference, then I'm all the better for it. 
that's that's incredible. I, I love that. Uh, so, listener, contribute to the Alex Lewis Trust. Uh, share this episode with your friends. If you're moved and inspired by Alex's story, as, as I am, it's a wonderful thing to do. Um, Alex, we'll make sure we include the link for how people can find out about the Alex Lewis Trust and contribute to it in the show notes. So uh, please make sure you um, email that to us, and uh, I'll make sure that yeah. gets into the show notes. I got a crazy thought here. I have a group of clients that are part of a high-level mastermind that I run. And we, from time to time, have speakers speak to us over Skype uh, to inspire uh-huh. us and be a great opportunity for people to know about the good work that you do. And uh, we can tell them about the Alex Lewis Trust if you're willing to do something like that over over Skype. Absolutely. Wonderful. More, more I'll, uh, I'll uh, make sure you are in touch with my amazing better half, Teresa, who also works with me, and uh, we'll get that organized. We've got one coming up pretty soon, actually. So, Alex, we'd like to end off each and every one of our episodes by asking you, as our expert guest, to give us in a sort of bullet point format, what are the top three expert action steps that you recommend our listener take on? to enhance their life, enhance their business, and better be able to make the difference they were born to make? What say you? For me, I'd say one of the the first things is to be a brilliant listener, an amazing listener. I learned very early on in hospital that all the advice was coming my way from so many people. And if I hadn't paid attention, if I hadn't listened to that, it could have altered the, the shape of my life indefinitely. And it wouldn't have been for the better. And I think because I, I just put that it, put the effort in to listen carefully to what they were saying, I couldn't take notes. I physically couldn't take notes. I physically couldn't operate an iPad. I physically couldn't operate a phone. But I had to listen, and so I had to take it on board. And it, I think it is that's enhanced my life uh, a hundredfold moving forward. Number two, I would say, is to I have a lot of regrets in the previous thirty-three years before I fell ill and opportunities that I should have taken. And uh, for whatever reason, I would make an excuse not to do it. There were what I thought were better things to do, but they weren't really. In the last five years, I've said yes to pretty much everything that's come my way, whether it's been skydiving, kayaking, whether it's been speaking to thousands of people at conferences, whether it's been talking to a group of four-year-olds at school. Um, whether it's been talking to scout group, you name it, uh, uh, hospital networks, consultants, thousands and thousands of people. And I think saying yes to everything for me has also changed my life for the better. And it's taken me in directions that I would never normally have gone into. And I find myself in a position now where I'm just blessed by all the yeses that I've been saying the last five years. And I think finally, the most important thing in all of this is you've got to love what you do. You've got to love it. You've got to live for it. You've got to get up in the morning. You've got to be buzzing because you know what you're going to do through that day. And for me, it's it's the trust. It's making a difference. It's the charity. It's being an amazing father, being a much better partner to Lucy. It's, uh, it's encompassing all of the last five years of my life and trying to uh, make it better, move forward and make it better. But just live for it. And I, I love it. I absolutely adore my life right now. And as I said at the Titan Summit, you know, a couple of months ago when I ended my, my, ended my speech on the Tuesday, 
it was a bold statement, but I was, I honestly, in that room, I was the happiest man in there. And I, I stand by it. I am just incredibly happy. And I just, I love the life I live. I'm, I'm just a, I'm a lucky, lucky guy. And at the moment, I'm living the dream. You know, I think if you can do that, you do all those three together, it will make for a wonderful life. God bless you, Alex. You're an incredible man. Yeah. Uh, it's an honor and a privilege to know you. Thank you for gracing uh, our, our, our humble show. And uh, we're, uh, we're privileged to have uh, had a chance to hear your story. Um, uh, it's, it's very Thank you. No, my pleasure. So, listener, if you've been listening to Alex and you've been thinking to yourself, as I have, wow, what an inspiring man. Can I be like him? Um, I, I don't know if I've got what it takes. And here's my answer to you. Yes, you can. If you have something on your heart, if you have a difference that you were born to make, and in particular, if you want to find a way to have that be your life's work, your business, and commercialize it, then I'm here to tell you that's 100% possible. It's, it's possible because, you know, Alex is doing this. It's possible because there's many, many, many other people that are doing this, many people that we've helped. And if you want to know how you can take that message, that purpose, that genius that's beating inside your heart and turn it into a very powerful, commercially successful body of work, a business as well as a calling, then what I want you to do is I want you to go to our website, ecircleacademy.com. Go to the top right-hand corner where it says book a success call now and click on that and book a success call with myself or a member of my team so that we can delve in to exactly what it is that's on your heart and we can help you get clear on how you can turn that into a magical, commercially successful business as well as your life's work, as well as the dent that you intend to make in the universe. So again, go to eastcircleacademy.com and click on the button in the top right-hand corner. Alex, once again, thank you for being on the show, my friend. It's been a complete honor. Absolute pleasure. And that wraps up another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. To find out more about today's incredible guest, the one and only Alex Lewis, go to the show notes and to jump on a success call with myself or a member of my team to help you take that vision that's living deep inside your soul and turning it into a calling and turning it into a successful business. Or if you're already on the path to doing that, but it's not happening at the level that you want it to and you believe that it can, still go ahead, click on that button in the top right-hand corner and jump on a success call with us because we can help you live the best version of yourself. Until next time, Goodbye.